As we get ready to open God's Word together today, I really want us to kind of dedicate this time to the Lord and really get our hearts focused on where we need to be. So we're going to pray together. Let me invite you to stand. And we're all just going to stand and pray together. Just wherever you are, bow your head, close your eyes, and uh, let me just lead us in this prayer. Our glorious and blessed heavenly conqueror, Jehovah Jireh, we beseech thee this day that thou wouldst pour out thy bountiful sustenance upon us all, and we appropriate thy miraculous propitiation and sanctification, whereby we have been anointed vicariously through thy unmerited favor and grace to be called, indeed, thy children, not as a result of works wrought in our own righteousness, but rather directly resulting from thy own righteousness imputed to us this day in the person of Jesus Christ. It is my fervent prayer that I have sufficiently impressed everyone with my big words during this prayer. Are you peeking yet? You should be peeking. Okay, go ahead and sit down. And some of you are thinking, okay, but was that a real prayer or was that not a real prayer? I mean, does that count as prayer? He was kind of, he was kind of joking in that prayer. Was he joking? I think he was joking. I don't know. If you, can you joke when you pray? Some of you are wondering if I'm going to get hit by lightning. I have a, I have a reputation sometimes before meals when we pray. Um, I like tease people in my prayers and things like that. And my, my wife says, one day we're going to all say amen and you're just going to be a pile of smoking ashes. <laughs> but I wanted to do that today because um, I wanted to get this sort of out on the table. Uh, we've been talking about the life of faith, and we've been talking specifically about prayer and how prayer fits into the life of faith. And whenever you begin to talk about prayer, for a lot of us, it becomes this sort of uncomfortable thing, makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up, and because prayer just makes us so, it just feels so awkward. Like, we, we, we listen to people pray, especially in church on Sundays, and the people who stand up in front, and they lead us in prayer, and we think, wow, they just always know what to say, and they never mumble and stumble, and, and they have all the right words. But boy, if you asked me to go up and stand before the congregation and pray, I would just be shaking in my boots, and I would be mumbling, and I, I wouldn't know what to say, and I might even say something that's not theologically sound, and then people would be judging me, and it'd be like, oh my gosh. And we think prayer is this big thing that is so sort of of um, exalted and so sort of different than everything else that it's hard for a lot of us to even approach God in prayer. We just feel like that's something for other people. Um, and so I want to just throw that out there. Is that what prayer is? I mean, does prayer have to involve these and thous? Does it have to have big words and fancy theological terms? Does it have to be um, written down and scripted and recited in just such a way? Are there, are there actually rules that we have to follow when we pray? Are there, do we have any freedom in the way that we pray? I mean, after all, the scripture does give us model prayers and says, pray like this. I mean, what are we supposed to do with this whole prayer thing? And a lot of us are really uncomfortable with it. So I'm going to get into it a little bit today, and, I, and we're going to look at some examples of prayer in Scripture and see what we can learn from this. And we're going to start in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, early on in your Bible. And, and as you're turning there, let me tell you that the 1 Samuel is basically the beginning of this whole section 
of the Scripture that is a history of Israel. And when you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, when you add them all together, you have 100 chapters of Scripture that cover 400 years of Israel's history. And God is basically laying it out and he's saying, let me tell you the story of my people and my interaction with them. And let me show you how I have acted with my people all along so you get a feel for what you can expect from me as God. And he's beginning this great story in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And he doesn't begin it with the story of some amazing prophet who came to the people and spoke this great message. He doesn't tell the story about this beautiful temple that was built and the priests and how the priests led the worship and all of that. He actually begins the story of this 400 years of history of Israel with this sort of backwoods family that nobody has ever sort of thought would make it to the pages of Scripture. It begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. <clears throat> you got that? There'll be a quiz on the names afterwards. Okay? This guy, Elkanah, that's the point. There's a guy named Elkanah. He could have just said that. Verse 2, he had two wives. Everybody go, ooh, two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So we have this story, it's going to tell us 400 years of the history of God's working with his people, and he begins the story with what amounts to an ancient episode of Jerry Springer. Okay, He says, there's this backwoods family, right, from the hill country, okay? And this dude named Elkanah, and he has two wives. And so you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a great episode. There's going to be some fireworks in this episode, right? Because it doesn't take a genius to know that if you have one husband and two wives, there's going to be some stress in that family at some level, Right? So there's this guy, this backwoods guy from the hill country named Elkanah, and he has two wives. And to make matters worse, it tells us that Peninnah had children and Hannah had no children. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament literature, you know that in this culture, it's very different than our culture today. In this culture, women had one sort of source of social status. It was whether or not they produced children, and more specifically, whether or not they produced male children. And so that was sort of where a woman's self-worth came from. In our culture today, it has to do with beauty, it might have to do with career, it might have to do with social acceptance and all that kind of stuff. In their culture, for a woman, her whole sense of worth came from that she had a husband and she had children. If she could not provide children for her husband, he literally had the legal right to just cast her off into the street and go and find somebody else to bear children. And no one would blame him for it because that was what a woman was for. Now, hopefully we've come a ways in our thinking about women since then. But in those days, that was the deal. And here's this woman who is now looking in the mirror every day, and it's yet another day when she's not pregnant. 
And to make matters worse, her husband has a second wife, and that woman pops out a baby every year. And so, so there's, the family is growing, and yet none of the children belong to Hannah. So you have this guy, he has two wives, one of them apparently very blessed by God. Obviously, she is well esteemed in God's eyes because God keeps giving her children. And then there's another one who must be disrespected by God and must not be loved by God because God doesn't give her any children. And you can imagine the stress that is built up in the relationship between these two women. And so the story begins. Verse 3. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, let's stop there for a second. So every year they go to a festival. Now, we don't do a lot of this in our culture. This would be something close to um, Thanksgiving or Christmas. It comes around every year. Everyone looks forward to it. Everyone celebrates it. And family comes from all directions. And everybody gets together for a big feast, right? And they do this every year. And it's tied into their worship. So they bring these offerings, whether it be grain offerings or meat offerings, animal sacrifices, and they come to this place called Shiloh where the high priest lives, and they make the sacrifices there. But it's not just that they come and have a sacrifice. You would actually bring the animal sacrifice. The animal would be butchered at the, by the priest, and then a certain amount would be kept. It would all get barbecued, and it would be given back to you, and you would go and have a feast with your family. And that's what they did. And you'd have days of feasting, and it happened every year. They went to the same feast every year. So just picture this for Hannah. Every year they show up at the feast and there's one more child in the family and it's not hers. And every year she has to talk to nosy Aunt Edna who wants to know what's going on and how come she hasn't had any kids yet. And every year she looks at the raised eyebrows as people say, oh look, you have so many children. How many of these are yours, Hannah? And Hannah has to say, none of these are mine. The Lord has not blessed me. And so her husband, Elkanah, sees this, and he has enough sensitivity to care. He loves her very much. And he says, as I give these portions to Peninnah and all of her children, and then I come to Hannah, I'm going to give her a double portion of the sacrifice. It's a sign that I understand, that I love her, that God loves her. And I just want to encourage her. So he's a good guy and he wants, to, and wants to care for his wife and he really loves her. But it says, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now, verse 6, her rival, how, <clears throat> her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. What a nice lady. So every year, the other wife has got her belly sticking out. And she'd come up and she'd poke her in the belly and she'd say, anything in there this time? Mocking her again and again, always measuring herself next to this woman who has all of these babies. Obviously, she must be blessed. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe God has turned his back on me. Maybe God doesn't even know I exist. Maybe God doesn't care. I've been praying and my womb is closed. Verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? 
And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better than ten sons? Now, some of you women are sitting here right now going, yeah, typical man, right? (laughs) Totally doesn't get it. It's not that he doesn't care. He, he loves her. It says he loves her. He gave her a double portion. But he absolutely doesn't understand these emotions that she's going through. And frankly, he's sick of it. He's saying, man, every year we go to this thing. It's supposed to be a celebration. We're supposed to be dancing and feasting and all of that. And every time we go, you're in a bad mood. You're always depressed. Why are you so sad? And he knows the answer. So he says to her, look, aren't I better than 10 sons? And if I said that to my wife, she would say, no, you're not. You're not better than 10 goats. I mean, who is that insensitive to his wife? Aren't I enough for you? No, dear, you're not. Because everybody looks at me and everybody sees me and everybody, when they see me, says to themselves, she must not be loved by God. I know they don't say it out loud, but I know that's what they're thinking. I can see it in their eyes, and I see the way they whisper when I walk by. And every year, I have to go through this. Her husband's not a bad guy. He just doesn't get it. She is broken. She is falling apart. And after the feasting and the sacrifices, she begins to cry out to God. Look at verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. and she, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head." Now, it came about when she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. Now, let's stop there. Just pay attention to her prayer. First of all, what you need to notice is that she calls herself his maidservant. Again and again, she doesn't call herself his daughter. She doesn't say, Lord, Father, I'm coming to you as your daughter, and I'm dying here, and I need your help. She just says, no, I, I'm just your maidservant. I'm just, I want to say it again and again. She must say it three or four times in those two lines. Your maidservant, your maidservant. I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. I get that, but I'm hurting here, and I want to have a son. It's all that I want, and if you will give me this son, I will make a vow. A razor will never touch his head, and you say, what? What does that mean? Well, in these days, there was something called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was a vow that young men would make to God when they felt called by God to be a holy man, or they felt called by God to be a priest and to go into ministry. And they would make this vow and they would say, I'm going to have 30 days in which I'm going to fast and just go away from everything. I'm going to get separated from my culture and everybody else. And I'm just going to seek God for 30 days. And I'm not going to do any of the things that I normally do. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to bathe. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to do any of that stuff for 30 days. And they would go and take this Nazarite vow and they would go and seek after God. 
Sometimes when they were really serious and they wanted to dedicate themselves completely, they would take a Nazarite vow for 90 days. And they would eat just a limited diet for those 90 days. But during those 90 days, they would never cut their hair. And so you could tell the Nazarite by the way that his hair was grown out and unkempt. And it would be a sign that he had made this vow to God that he was a man after God, that he was going after God with all of his heart. And so she's saying to him, I will make on my son's behalf a Nazarite vow, not for 30 days, not for 90 days, for his entire life. My son will be dedicated to you for his entire life. So I'm not asking for me. I'm, I'm vowing on behalf of my son. She's making this offering to the Lord. Now, it's not the most impressive prayer you've ever heard. She, she doesn't follow any of the rules that you've been taught about how to pray. She obviously hasn't been to the Christian bookstore and picked up a book on prayer that tells her seven steps to praying the way God wants you to. She's not doing any of that stuff. She's certainly not following Jesus's model prayer from the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Lord's Prayer. She's not following any of the rules of prayer. She's She's not talking to God about how great he is. She's just crying out. It's, it's a selfish prayer, if you want to be honest. She's just going, I'm desperate, I'm broken, and I want you to do something for me, God. Just do it for me. She cries out on her own behalf. She wants some tangible sign that God actually knows she exists, that God actually loves her, that he actually cares. Obviously, this is not the first time she's ever prayed. I guarantee you she must have prayed many times for a child and never got it. And now she's reached this point of desperation where she's just crying out to God and she just wants some kind of tangible sign that God loves her. She wants to know that she has not lost all of her value in his eyes. This is the prayer of a desperate and a hurting woman. She's having trouble finding evidence that God cares. You ever been there? Hurting so much that you just go, does God even care? Because he's got all this power and he's supposed to love me, but I'm telling you, I'm just drowning here and I'm crying out and it's like he, he doesn't even respond. I've been crying out for such a long time. Maybe he doesn't even exist. And if he exists, maybe he doesn't know I exist. Maybe I've done something to separate myself from him so bad that he'll never listen to me again. Just that kind of hurt. She's ashamed. She's embarrassed. She is broken on the inside. And she's about to get even more embarrassed because she's already sort of been um, chastised by her husband for her attitude. And now she's about to get called out by her pastor. Look at verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli, that's the high priest, was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Now, before you think that that's a ridiculous conclusion to jump to, it makes all the sense in the world. It's a feast. It's it's just like a wedding reception, right? Right? The wine is flowing, the food is being served, there's dancing and celebration. People get drunk at these things all the time. You read your Old Testament, there are multiple times when they actually have to make rules for how to behave when you're at one of these things because people get so wasted when they come to these things. And so he's looking at her and he's thinking, here she is, another woman, she's been having too many glasses of wine and I need to chastise her. So he goes up to her thinking that she has been drinking too much. Um, verse 14, then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? 
put away your wine from you. In other words, lady, lay off the sauce. Enough, right? Maybe your husband needs to get you under control. You need to go and sit down and be quiet. And you think, why would he think that of her? Well, she's over there standing in a corner with tears streaming down her face and her lips are moving, but she's not talking. She's mumbling to herself like some sort of crazed lunatic. And he looks at her and goes, this lady's wasted. And so he goes to her and says, knock it off. Verse 15, but Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is not an impressive woman. This is not an impressive prayer. Some poor backwoods lady who's in a domestic dispute and she's miserable, and she's depressed, and she's crying out to God, and her husband has already chastised her, and now the pastor has called her out right in front of everybody and embarrassed her even more, and she has only been crying out to God. And this story, this is how God decides that he wants to introduce this great historical account of his activity with Israel. It's a prayer that doesn't follow any of the rules. She doesn't start out by buttering God up and telling him how wonderful he is before she asks for anything, like so many of us have been taught to do. She doesn't spend any time thanking him for all the things that he has done, which is one of the things I always encourage people to do in prayer. Um, there are no these and thous. It doesn't seem to have been a well-thought-out, well-constructed prayer. It's certainly not a poem. It's just a desperate plea from a desperate woman. And to make things worse, if we're, if we're evaluating her prayer, she's doing the one thing you're not supposed to do. She's bargaining with God. She's acting like she has something to offer to God, right? She's like the, the, the shipwrecked guy out in the ocean who's swimming toward the shore and he's praying and he's saying, God, if you just get me to the shore, then I'll be a monk my whole life and I'll go up and do nothing but pray and read my Bible. And as he gets closer and closer, he begins to get more confident and his bargain with God goes down and down until finally he gets to the shore and he says, man, I'm a good swimmer. <laughs> and, and, and that's what she's doing. She's bargaining with God. She's like, if you just give me a son, I will give him to you, which, which is not such a bad way of thinking, right? I mean, it's the very same thing I said when we, when we took our offering and I prayed today. I said, God, you give us so much, we're just giving back to you a little bit of what you've given to us. It's what we do as followers of God. But she's saying, listen, this is how I'm going to talk God into granting me my wish. I'm going to offer him something. And guys, if you're coming to God thinking you're going to get what you want from God by offering him something he needs, you are barking up the wrong tree because God needs nothing, Right? So you don't get to bargain with God. So she messed up even that. We've been talking about living the life of faith, and there are some of us who honestly feel like when it comes to prayer, that's probably the best we could do. 
Like we, 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 we never know the right rules. We never know the right words. We never know how to, how to talk. And we're trying to impress people, but we don't. We talk about prayer and we think, I have absolutely no idea how to pray. I never want to pray out loud in front of people because I know I'm going to mess it up. I just don't know how to do that. But here at the beginning of this great chronicle of Israel's history is this story of this messed up woman praying a messed up prayer in the middle of messed up circumstances. And the only one in the whole story that's not messed up is God. And then, doesn't that make you think it might just work out? This prayer doesn't fit the model prayer that any of us has in mind. But look what it says in verse 15. If you, if you write in your Bibles, underline these words. The bat, at the bottom of verse 15, she says, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. See, God hears this prayer, this messed up prayer from a messed up woman in messed up circumstances. He hears this prayer. And what does God say when he hears this prayer? He says, print that. Put it in the Bible. I want that prayer saved. I want people to have a chance to hear that prayer because I want them to know that that is a legitimate way to pray too. Why was it legitimate? Just what she said in verse 15. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And my friends, that's what prayer is. So get out of your minds this idea that it has to be eloquent. Get out of your minds this idea that it has to be poetic, that it has to be uh, theologically deep. Get out of your minds all of that kind of stuff and just ask yourself, when I'm really hurting, when I'm really lost, when I'm really at the end of my rope, when I really have nothing to offer, can I pour out my soul to God? Because if you can, you can pray. If you do that in the context of a life of faith, and I guarantee you, God hears that prayer. Now, do you remember my sermon before I left for Africa just three, four weeks ago? Um, I preached from Luke chapter 18 as I was starting to get into this issue of prayer and the life of faith. And I preached preach from Luke chapter 18 about the story that Jesus told, and there were two people praying. One of them was a Pharisee, right? And the other one was what? Anybody remember? Tax collector, right? It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee has on all the right robes and all the right garb. He is dressed the way you're supposed to be dressed when you come to church. He has all of the right religious... Um, uh, um, you know, um, activities memorized, and he has them down to a T. He knows the scripture backward and forward. He's dedicated his whole life to serving God, and he comes in and he prays this beautiful, flowery prayer, thanking God for how great God has made him. And then next to him is this tax collector, criminal, and he's beating his chest, and he's just crying out to God for mercy. And Jesus said, God heard and answered one of those prayers that day. And which one was it? The tax collector. See, we got to get out of our minds this idea that somehow prayer is this, is this uh, art that we, that we craft some beautiful thing, and out of this beautiful thing we can come before the Lord. God says, no, no, my whole point is you need me. That's why you come to me in prayer. The same thing was true with the thief on the cross, right? Remember, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. There's a thief on his right and a thief on his left. And the, and the one thief is mocking him along with everybody else, isn't he? But then the other thief, the thief on the other side, it says he cries out to him and he says, Lord, 
remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Know our Father who art in heaven. No, no flowery prayer. No, I thank you for this and I praise you for that. This guy wasn't baptized. He didn't join the church. He wasn't a member of the Sunday school class. He hadn't done any of the things that everybody's taught you have to do in order to approach God. And yet there he was within an inch of his life about to be dead. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He heard that prayer and he answered it. You would never use that prayer as the sample prayer for how we ought to pray. But maybe you should. Lord, remember me. That's a legitimate prayer. Same was true for old blind Bartimaeus. You remember that blind guy on the side of the road screaming and shouting out as Jesus and his entourage are going past? And he's shouting out. And what is he shouting out? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Again and again and again, screaming and crying, just this blind beggar by the side of the road. And everybody trying to shut him up. And the disciples are going over to him and going, hey, keep it down, man. The, the Lord has places to be, has things to do. And just as they're talking, Jesus comes along and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, what do you want me to do for you? imagine Jesus looking at you in the eye and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Boy, you don't want to say the wrong thing then, do you? <laughs> this is your one shot, maybe. What do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, I want to receive my sight. And Jesus said, receive it. And suddenly he could see. And what was there instructional about that prayer? Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to receive my sight. You're starting to see a pattern here, the kinds of prayers that seem to draw the heart of God. None of these prayers are impressive. None of these people are impressive. But just like Hannah, they're pouring out their souls before the Lord, and God hears, and God answers. Let's continue, verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. God answered her prayer. Everybody else thought she was a drunken lunatic, but God heard her heart. He responded according to his will for her prayer. Now, don't, don't start saying, okay, so obviously all I got to do is ask God. If I just pour out my heart and ask him, he'll have to do it. No, he didn't have to do it for Hannah, but he did. He just chose to bless her. And, and what I want you to notice about this before we go on too far is that, is that there, was, there was no fireworks. There was no voice from heaven. There was no thunder and lightning when God answered this prayer. It says, it's, a, it's very simple, it's, it's almost embarrassing to read. They, they rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, returning into their house in Ramah, and Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife. That's pretty much the way you get babies, right? Right? There's no, there's no angelic visitors, there's no voice from heaven, there's no incredible miracles and fireworks and all that kind of stuff. In just the normal way, she became pregnant. And she carried that baby full term. And after 40 weeks, just like every other woman, she gives birth. And she gives birth to a son and she calls him Samuel, which means asked of God. And God changes the world through her son. 
See, Hannah does bring him back and dedicate him to the Lord. And he is raised by the high priest, and he is trained for ministry, but he rises far above his own mentor in terms of his spiritual maturity and his influence because he has a heart that's fully dedicated to God, and even the high priest doesn't have that. And he lives a life of faith characterized by trust and obedience because he believes that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do, and God gets a hold of this young man, Samuel, and uses him to change the world. And if you don't know how he changed the world, just remember this. He's just a baby. He's just a little boy. He's nobody special. He's brought and he's dedicated. He's raised up to follow God. And he begins to hear God's voice. And God calls him to be a prophet. And Samuel the prophet is the centerpiece of the change in all of Israel, the change in all of the world to look back to God away from paganism. You've all heard of King David, right? We know King David is the center of the whole story, right? How, how the, the people are pagan and they won't go after God and they're falling away and then God raises up King David and King David is a man after God's own heart and he leads them to be worshipers of God again and Israel returns wholeheartedly to God and King David is so honored among God and his people that God calls him a man after my own heart and says, I'm going to bring the Messiah through him. And he comes in the line of David so that even to this day, the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel is called the city of what? David. You know about David, the giant killer, David, the mighty warrior, David, the great king, David, the shepherd, David, the psalmist. We know all about David, don't we? Well, guess who mentored David? Samuel. Guess who was his teacher and his supporter and his pastor and his friend? Samuel. When he was lost and he didn't know what to do, who was it that brought the word of God to him? It was Samuel. This man who grew up from a little boy who was the result of a prayer from a woman who had tears streaming down her face when she just cried out to God and said, I'm pouring my soul out before you, Lord. And God changed the world through Samuel. Let me give you another quick example so you can see how all this fits into the life of faith. Go to the... Okay. Matthew chapter 15, and I want you to go to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 15, and in Matthew 15, basically what you've had up until this point is Jesus giving lessons on what it means to be pure, because the Pharisees have this idea that it's the way you wash your hands, it's the way you dress, it's your ceremony that makes you pure, and Jesus goes, no, no, it's what's inside of you that makes you pure. It's all about the heart. It's not about outward trappings. The, the Pharisees are saying that Jews are pure and Gentiles are unclean, and Jesus goes, no, it has nothing to do with race. They, they would teach that, that uh, women are unclean, and Jesus goes, no, 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 it has nothing to do with gender. He's saying it has to do with the heart. And then he gets to verse 21, and we come across this absolutely bizarre story. You don't find it in any of the other Gospels, but Matthew tells us this in the midst of this telling of what it means to be clean. And in verse 21, here's what he says. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, what you need to know about that 
is a Tyre and Sidon. When Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, this is the only time in the Gospels that he leaves Israel and goes to Gentile lands. This is the only time. He has to travel about 50 miles to get there. And he goes to this Gentile place, and we don't know why he went. It doesn't tell us why he went, but I can tell you this, that these cities were sort of the vacation hotspots of the day. This would have been like, say, Palm Springs or something like that, that people go to just get away for the weekend. And he went to this place. Now, I don't know if it was for a vacation. It very well may have been. It may have been that they, were, they had been working in their ministry and said, guys, we just need some time off. Let's go get away from the crowds where everybody doesn't know us and everybody's not seeking after us. And let's just get some R&R. We don't know why he went there, but he went there. And we know what happens when he got there. Verse 22, and a Canaanite woman, or maybe your Bible says a Syrophoenician woman, and, and, and both of them are accurate because Syrophoenician, the Syrophoenician people were in the Canaanite region, but, but I like Syrophoenician because it means that she's a half-breed. She's half-Syrian, she's half-Phoenician, and both of those cultures are pagan, but they're different kinds of pagans, and they worship different kinds of gods, so very likely she worships all of these gods from her cultures, okay? She's a Syrophoenician woman from that region, and she came out and began to cry out, saying, "'Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed.'" But he did not answer her a word. Let's stop there. This is a very uncomfortable story. This woman comes to Jesus. Now, I want you to just put yourself in her shoes for a second. If you're a mother, you can really relate to this. But even if you're not, you have to understand the person she loves the most in the whole world, her daughter, is possessed by a demon or maybe a group of demons. She says, my daughter is cruelly possessed by demons. And, and I can't even picture what that's like, right? I just got back from Africa, so this is very uh, fresh in my mind. You, uh, there's a lot we don't understand about Satan and what he's doing and spiritual warfare and all of this. Here's one thing I'm learning and have been learning for years, and that is that Satan behaves differently in different places based on the culture and what, where he can get a foothold, Right? So here, I think most of his activity is sort of very subtle and under the radar. It's all about materialism and all of that kind of stuff. And he's working in all these covert ways to draw us away from God. But you go to a culture that has paganism just deeply rooted in it, and they have things like witch doctors and, and shamans and all that kind of stuff. And what you will find is that a lot of Satan's activity is very, very overt and you see it, and you see demon-possessed people, and you see stuff going on that just blows your mind, and there's needs for deliverance for people, and, and Satan works in the ways that he works. Imagine being a, a, a mother, a father, a parent, and your daughter is tormented by demons. How desperate would you be? And it's so interesting as she prays, it says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. It's interesting, isn't it? She doesn't say, have mercy on my daughter. She says, have mercy on me. She's saying, God, I'm at the end of my rope here. The thing that matters most to me in the whole world is just, is just falling apart and I am dying on the inside. Have mercy on me by healing my daughter. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Well, that's nice. 
This, by the way, is, is not a textbook on how to do effective ministry, okay? This person is desperate, comes to Jesus, and the, the racial prejudice among the disciples is so strong that they say, listen, get her out of here. We don't want this woman around us. We're not even supposed to touch people like her. I don't even know what we're doing in this Gentile land anyway. Remember Jesus led them to Samaria and they were like scratching their heads going, what are we doing in Samaria? We're getting dirty here in Samaria, right? Now he's led them to the Gentile lands. These are not even half-breed Jews. And they're going, what are we doing here? This woman is coming up and she's making such a ruckus. She's driving us nuts. Can you get her out of here? Just tell her to shut up. Tell her to go away, but it says Jesus didn't answer her a word. You're like, wow, this is Jesus? It's probably going to come around, right? Verse 24, finally he answers her. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus said that to someone who came to him begging for mercy. Someone who came to him begging to have demons cast out. Jesus said, you know what? I didn't come for you people. I came for the people of Israel. And, and if you don't know this, the gospel, the whole Jesus thing didn't really hit the Gentiles until halfway through the book of Acts. It was all set there in Israel. It was for the Jews. He was the Messiah of the Jews. And yet we know Jesus, we know the heart of Jesus, we know that he loves everybody, we know that he's not prejudiced based on race or culture or gender or socioeconomic standing or any of that stuff, and here comes this woman and he goes, look, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you, I didn't come for you. And I go, wow, could this, this can't be right, could this be Jesus? Well, he'll probably come around. Verse 25, but she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. So the disciples have said, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. So she goes to the back, runs around the crowd, comes around the front, falls down in front of him so that he can't walk past. And she bows down before him and she cries out, help me, just help me. And now, obviously, he's going to be kind to her. Verse 26, he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? This is Jesus. What is he doing? He, is he really looking down on this woman like that? Is he looking at her and go, because you're of a different race, you're not good enough to even talk? You're a dog to me. That's what he says. Jesus. Man, something is weird in this story. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What a weird story, right? It's uncomfortable. The disciples didn't want anything to do with her. Jesus explains that, listen, culturally, you shouldn't even be talking to us and we shouldn't be talking to you. I'm a Jewish rabbi. I'm not supposed to have anything to do with you. But Jesus had gone way out of his way for this woman. We look at the way this unfolds and it looks as though Jesus is caught by surprise, but is Jesus ever caught by surprise? He went 50 miles to accidentally bump into this woman. 
And as far as the scripture tells us, he didn't do anything else there. As far as we know, this is the only thing he did. He traveled 50 miles to bump into this woman, have this confrontation with her, and cast demons out of her daughter. He loved her. Just imagine what her life was like. Imagine how broken and scarred and hurt she must have been. Her daughter is possessed by demons. and She did not know how to pray. And she had no right to even talk to him. She had nothing to offer him. When he said, oh, you know what, we, we, uh, we, I didn't come for you. She didn't come and say, oh, yeah, but don't worry because I have money and I'll support your ministry. She didn't say, I know, but listen, I'm going to be a really devout follower. If you just help me out, I'll help you out. She had nothing to offer him. She had no right to even speak to him, and yet she was desperate. She wasn't even in his social class. But by cultural norms, she had no right to even talk to him, and still she falls at his feet and cries out to him, and she prays anyway. Verse 22, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Verse 25, Lord, help me. Verse 27, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall at the master's table. Jesus hadn't responded the way she hoped. It's not good to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. But she didn't stop. And he wasn't refusing her. He was just pointing out what an outrageous thing it was for her to make this request of him. So what does all this have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. It's an outrageous thing for you or I to think that we can march into the throne room of God, stand before him and say, I need you to do something for me. That's insane. That's ridiculous. Somebody like you, somebody like me, access to the King of kings and Lord of lords? No way. It's impossible. Except with Jesus, all things are possible. And he makes a way for us, the dogs. It wasn't a racial statement he was making. He was talking about her spiritual condition. People who can't save themselves, the dogs who come to him. And all we can do is cry out. And is he willing to hear that prayer? You bet he is. He wasn't refusing her. He was just pointing out how ridiculous it was before he gave her what she asked for. She had absolutely no right to make such a bold request of Jesus, and that's the whole point. She's crying out to God for help when she has no argument for why she deserves it. She's asking for mercy. She's asking for grace. She's crying out to God, and she's pouring out her soul before the Lord. And by His amazing mercy and grace, He responds. You think it's offensive that He calls her a dog? Listen. Maybe the greatest English hymn of all time is Amazing Grace. And how does it begin? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, guys, we have to come to grips with who we really are. Apart from Christ, we have nothing to offer God. But by His amazing grace, we can be set free. And Jesus always responds to a person who comes to him by grace through faith. And this woman had a lot of faith. Jesus said she had great faith. She refused to give up. She kept crying out to Jesus. She persisted no matter what the um, roadblocks lay before her. She refused to look anywhere else because nobody else had what she needed. And Jesus says she has great faith. What does a walk of faith look like? 
It's about following Jesus. It's not about following religious rules and impressing God with our righteousness. It's about being utterly aware of our need for God and praying as though we believe that He is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. And so I want to just close by asking you to make this personal and ask yourself this question. What is holding you back from that? What's holding you back? What keeps you from just falling down before God saying, I got nothing to offer, I got no hope, I got nothing to give you, I have no right to be here except by the blood of Jesus, but by the blood of Jesus, I am here in the throne room of grace, and I'm just pouring out my heart to you, God. What's holding you back from that? Is it your pride? Your your sense that you you don't really want to be exposed to God, you don't really want, you, you don't want to be seen as anything but having it all together? You don't want to be judged the way Hannah was judged as she cried out to God that day? Is it your sense of self-sufficiency? You know, I could probably handle this. I've handled a lot of harder things before. I know I could do this. Maybe I don't really need God that much. Is it fear? What would God do if I actually gave Him my whole life and said, Lord, I'm going to take my hands off the wheel and you just handle this? Is it fear? Or maybe you're just not sure where to start. Why not start? with a simple prayer, crying out to God, God, I've come to the end of myself. I have nothing to offer you, but, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Oh, Lord, help me. He loves you. He waits with open arms for you to pour out your soul to him. And then watch as he changes your life and then changes the world through you. The life of faith... It's not that complicated. 